host, Bradley Tusk. Today is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our front-end producer, Hugo Lindgren, but also with us, because there's so much news happening in the tech world, is my partner, Jordan Knopf. Uh, Listeners are familiar with Jordan already. So, Jordan, Hugo, how's it going? Good, great, great weekend for for the news. I gotta say, on the uh, yeah, it was funny. Hugo and I were sort of debating what to do for today, and then by like Thursday or Friday, it was very clear that it was like, let's just see if Jordan's available <laughs> because this is clearly the, the the dominant stuff happening. So let's jump into OpenAI. Um, I have a bunch of specific questions for you, but I'll just start it with just give me your take on what happened. You know, I, I got it in one sentence. Uh, the take that I have is that this has to be one of the worst communication fumbles that I've seen since, you know, obviously huge company here, but still private. Get Silicon Valley Bank level catastrophic in, in fumbling any form of valuable communication as to why you're ousting a CEO of a nonprofit at 5 p.m. on Friday with uh, a pretty, uh, you know, pretty, pretty can be interpreted as meaningful accusation um, that essentially he was lying to the board. But we're not going to give you any details about that. Just let that simmer. So that was that was what they decided to come out with. Yeah, so the OpenAI board is is different than your usual board. It's a nonprofit board governing a for-profit company. Although that company also has limitations on its on its ability to make money. Um, why do they have that structure? And have you ever seen that before? So I've never seen it before. Um, this. In, if you were to sequence it, it kind of makes some sense. So, all right, they, they wanted to create a company that would be governed not by maximizing shareholder value, but by, by pursuing the mission uh, that they set out to, to do with this project uh, for OpenAI. Um, then they realized that this is a pretty capital-intensive endeavor, and donations alone are not going not gonna to get you there. So what they did is they created, so they have a board of directors that, that governs a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically uh, what they ended up doing is, is creating a for-profit subsidiary of that, which, will, where, which is fully controlled by the nonprofit, uh, by the nonprofit board um, and essentially moved over everybody that was working on anything revenue generating um, to, to, the non-pro- or to the profit-seeking entity. Um, look, I think that that makes some sense in the sense that it's you're aligning interests, right? So you have people that are, are pursuing, it wouldn't make any sense to have people that are working on projects for revenue generation or for a profit-seeking, uh, a profit-seeking goal to be working and reporting up through uh, a, a nonprofit entity. Um, you know, I do think that the way where this all fell apart is where, where you have, you have um, essentially the, that board has to make some pretty tricky decisions. So, how what what is deemed necessary to further further pursue this goal that they have of 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 generating for the greater good, you know, uh, essentially generative AI concepts? How do you know how much money is enough? How do you how do you say now this is you're 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 mixing a nonprofit and a and a profit seeking entity together? Um, but more nuanced than that is how do you keep maintain the, like doing What's in the best interest of all of the shareholders of that? So the investors that did participate, all right, they put this cap note structure in place. What about the employees? Like what just happened on Friday, probably one, one material impact there is right now there were, there were several large venture funds pursuing to invest a significant amount of money in, in the form of buying secondary shares of employee stock. 
So you had a bunch of employees that are, are they're not working for the nonprofit. They're working on they're working at a startup that is generating profit producing ideas and concepts that were looking to sell their shares, provide meaningful liquidity for themselves, for their families. And that's now all in jeopardy because of what the board of a nonprofit it decided to do. So if you, I mean, I know we don't actually know why the board did what they did because they don't seem to be willing to tell anybody. But if you had to guess, because it, it, they were clear that there was no like malfeasance or, or anything like that, allegations against Sam Altman in any way. So w if you put yourself in the position of the four people who voted to remove him, what do you think was going through their mind? I mean, these are smart people. There had to be some argument for it. I mean, so this is just the, this is the, this is just pure speculation, yeah. as always. I mean, based on the question. Um, but look, I, I do think that that there was a discrepancy around Sam Altman's other activities. That whether that's on the investing side, um, that they may have may or may have not believed were ben benefiting from his work at OpenAI, which should have been a mission-driven, nonprofit-seeking enterprise. Okay, but I mean. I think, unless unless he's just a, a brilliant sort of scam artist, Altman is seen to have done a pretty amazing job building this company. We're looking at an eighty billion dollar valuation. He has been out front on regulatory issues. Um, sure, he has other things going on, but you're on a bunch of boards. If you had a CEO performing at that level, and there was no specific sort of malfeasance that you would say, you know, we just have to fire this person no matter what. I mean, would you? Can even consider doing something like this. I mean, well, it's just it's. I think it's a. It's really difficult to 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 compare those two because the boards that we're on are, you know, they're profit-seeking companies. They're pro they're they're for-profit startups that eventually, hopefully, become very large businesses. They're no longer startups anymore, but their their interests are to, the the objective of the board is to you know really in, at the highest level is to ensure governance is in place and, and provide strategic guidance and insight to the founder and the management team with the sole, with the sole responsibility that acting in all stockholders' best interests. So everybody from, if they're investors, from their, the other preferred investors that, mm -hmm. that came into the round, all the way down to the employee that has the smallest number of shares on that cap table. That's who they're responsible for. So they have to put themselves aside and it's a fiduciary responsibility. So, so it looks like, so again, we don't know, but you kind of think that based on who the four people are and their kind of more broader public policy kind of roles in, in, in society, that they were maybe thinking about this from a macro, you know, we want to make sure AI doesn't do harm to the world, and maybe they didn't have confidence that Sam Altman was sort of driving the, the ship in that direction. But l let's say that that was what they were worried about. That's got nothing to do with the best interests of the shareholders, right? So didn't they violate their fiduciary duty? Well, it's interesting because that's a for what I just described as a for-profit company. So here, the, their mission, their fiduciary obligation is to at a nonprofit. Um, look, I'm not. Uh, it's hard for me to speak that that yeah. fluidly about a nonprofit board, but my understanding is that their their obligation is to ensure that the mission that this that this that this nonprofit set out to achieve is what is is preserved regardless yeah although i, I will say now i'm just gonna make a dig at nonprofit boards but i have served on some and then reached the conclusion that i will never serve on another one 
which is their mission seems to be furtherance of their own status and self-importance more than anything else from what I can tell in most cases. But um, putting that aside, can you, like I understand why a food bank would have a, a nonprofit board. I would imagine that this structure will probably never be tried again in, in this way because it's a disaster. Um, well, look, I think it's a disaster mixing the two together, as you yeah. just said. You, you, like the alignment of incentives is is pretty much it drives almost everything. Um, if you can properly align incentives within any organization, you can achieve success. I think here you have a bunch of people running in a bunch of different directions with a, a tremendous amount of spotlight on them and a tremendous amount of dollars. Uh, in the bank. And so I think that there's no doubt going to be a lack of trust. Uh, are you doing what's in the best interest of, of, of this pre-described mission? Or are you doing what most humans do is what's in the best interest, best interest for themselves? So Microsoft owns 49% of OpenAI, and yet it seems like over the weekend they asserted control and that they put in uh, someone from Twitch, which they own um, as the no, Amazon owns Twitch, right? So, Twitch. Th so you had. Is, you, <laughs> I think what's even more convoluted about it is the person that they put in actually was another Y Combinator uh, part-time partner. So you had. So this, they put uh, in someone from the from the Altman universe, and then hired Altman and Greg Brockman to run like Microsoft's AI research efforts, which presumably oversee on some level open AIs. I would, efforts, I would, right? I would just say probably presumably has a charter that was filled out like at five in the morning today. Um, but if Microsoft <laughs> owns 49% of the company, how were they able to sort of take control? So I don't think that this was a control provision. I, I would say this. I think that everybody was trying to figure out how to set, because everybody, and by everybody I'm saying people that uh, are, cool, from what we know, the yeah. most vocal about, about Sam Altman leaving, a lot of the investors, so the venture capital investors, were very vocal about about lobbying for Sam Altman to say that he's imperative to this business. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of risk associated with something like this. You have a management change that comes out of nowhere with no explanation, mm -hmm. and in a company that can't seem to go 10 seconds without an article being written about them, um, you're going to have a lot of questions about what, what's going on. Microsoft trying to protect an $11 billion investment from just being obliterated, this seems like a very, very smart textbook move to say, okay, you're going to come here. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the. We're going to. We're going to remove you from this. This pretty negative picture, regardless of what the what the real truth was. We're going to make up this role at this at this as part of the parent organization. Put you there um, as the, he was trying to renegotiate an entry back to into the company. It does feel, I, now I don't know if it'll control, it should be completely independent from OpenAI. I don't think that they forced control in the sense that, that we would think of it. Do you think the, the board members realized they fucked up and then tried to do something to fix it? No, I think they got pressured really heavily by a bunch of really aggressive venture capital funds and, and Microsoft and the media in general to say, you, you have to provide a better, I mean, one of the potential solutions was to rip out and replace this entire board and restructure this entire organization was one of the conditions that Sam Altman did, did vocalize. Um, from my understanding, for him to return, yeah. I think that you know, to, why, if, why would he return to the same situation? That, exactly. Why would I go back and inflict more, get more, get more of, uh, of the same? So I think that that look to 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 avoid uh, 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 what probably was perceived as a, as a as an existential threat in the form of talent from leaving 
Um, you know, there's no shortage of people that would back Sam Altman in doing something else. Yeah. Microsoft retained him to, you know, ensure that certain people probably stay in place. But from a control perspective, it's not like they have the, they can't force the Microsoft doesn't have influence on the board. Um, and this is what's also fascinating back to the alignment of incentives. So typically you have preferred investors that are taking board seats like on the venture capital side. And they're, they have a lot of skin in the game. They've made material investments. There's significant upside. They're in it for the economics. And, you know, it's, it's obvious none of these board members hold any stock. So to say that you've achieved this alignment of incentives, usually you bring in one independent. This is essentially all independent. Yeah, four independents. Yeah. Exactly. So um, B Corps, right? So B, B Corps, as I understand it, are for-profit corporations, but with some sort of social good in their mission and some in theory, amount of their profits go to furthering that mission as opposed to just uh, going back to the shareholders. Um, do, do they run the same kind of risk here? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I, honestly, I think that the bigger risk with the B Corps are that uh, people realize that, the, you know, well, what really, what is this besides, besides just uh, a logo and probably, the, you know, some, some sort of mission that is not, you're not able to actually there's plenty of companies that are B Corps that I don't see any any reporting that they put out. There are venture funds that are B Corps. I don't know what, what reporting. Okay, so your clients. argument isn't that B Corps aren't really successful. It's that they are indistinguishable from regular for-profit corporations. Yeah, I think maybe the same. I think that yeah. I think that it's like, a yeah, that's it. You made a. You, you, you said the right things on an application. A distinction a, without a difference. A, exactly. It's a, right. We're going to try our best. To so do. you would say, in the way that you view ESG, that's different than the way that you view a B Corp. Absolutely. So, you know, an e, e, ESG, you're, you're signing up for uh, a specific mandate that is quantifiable to a certain degree and that your, your sole mission is to move certain aspects of, of those parameters forward. A B Corp, I think, is just, uh, you know, and I, I, I got to say, I haven't spent th that much time looking at B Corps, right. uh, but I do we, yeah. felt, felt like more marketing than anything else. Yeah, it's pretty rare that we even encounter one in our, in there, our diligence. There's, yeah, there's a, the, some, sometimes we'll make a move to that later on, Yeah, you know, and it's usually if, there, if there's some sort of we're going to donate something as part of uh, our mission and, you know, like, there's there and there's or if there's a fund that's in existence that does you know we're investing in traditional technology but we're also doing we have this climate initiative there's a few venture funds out there that have that have kind of made that move but it, it did feel like more of a pr move than anything else so the other big story in tech over the last few days has been elon musk's uh comments that were perceived to be i, I believe them to be um highly anti-semitic and has led to a deluge of advertisers fleeing X or Twitter or whatever we want to call it. So if, if a CEO in our portfolio asks you whether they should continue advertising on X, so let's just assume in this case they're already advertising on it, um, two questions. One, what would you tell them? And two, at what point do your own morals, and I certainly know your views on, on Israel and, and anti-Semitism, um, when do they take precedence over the best interest of the company, if ever? Uh, so, so I guess... Starting with the, the last part, so yeah. never. Um, so if it's if you're a board member, look, this is your fiduciary responsibility to do us in the best interest of the company and uh, maximizing shareholder value. Um, it's it, you know there should be a bifurcation between right. my views and, and 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 elsewhere. However, I could say this is so morally off compass from what I believe in. I can't even do this job anymore, and I'm resigning. I relinquish my board seat. 
and I can be as vocal and critical about this company as I want to be on X as an investor still. Right. So, so the way you would, from a fiduciary standpoint, justify it if, if there really wasn't a business case for it would be potential loss of employees, potential loss of talent and potential diminution to the brand to the point where it does ultimately more harm than good. So you, yeah, the math that you would have to figure out here, is, it's a really tricky question, but the fiduciary responsibility to do is in the best interest of the company, what you really would doing be doing there is you'd be evaluating all the risks associated on the reputational side, like you just mentioned, um, you know, alienating employees to the extent that the whatever, however many are still left there. Um, and, you know, you're, you're really making that decision to what is in the best it, or at, at Twitter, but the employees of the company that we're talking about. So if we're advising a startup, um, basically, what is in the best interest of the company? It's ironic, though, because the first question I'd say is, like, actually, how much money are you advertising on Twitter? Because it's just been such a hard, that, that, that is not right. exactly. Have you found, I mean, obviously, a lot of our portfolio companies do plenty of digital advertising. Um, what platforms do you find? I know every platforms are different for different products, but overall, which are the ones that you think kind of have the better returns? I mean, I uh, I think it, do, it you, you hit the nail on the head. It matters what what type of business, yeah. but you know, Meta obviously has been a huge force. Some some companies on 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 you know Google AdWords. Um, it really matters if you're talking about a consumer business or enterprise. Um, but I will say that that it's been. I cannot remember whenever somebody said I have a really effective marketing campaign running on on, on yeah. Twitter. So I was about to say, my in my awareness, the answer is no. But like, have we ever had a portfolio company that's really done incredibly well by advertising on Twitter? I think that it can amplify the message from a brand marketing perspective. Now, like if you're, but tracking, then that gets back into the underlying issue, which is if it's pure branding. And, and must fit something that is seen as so odious, how does that branding help you? Well, I mean, this is more branding. You're putting out a message from your company and you're just saying, look, this is the medium that I'm using to, to build the brand versus versus I'm agreeing with what, what Elon Musk is doing. But to your broader point, I think that it's kind of, um, you know, what happened over the, whatever happened on, on Friday um, was just, I don't think that th there was much thought as to what, what level of responsibility, uh, you know, what the impact would be on the employees at Twitter, what the impact would be to the, the, to the, the advertisers of the platform. And it just felt like it was something that was just out there for, to grab attention. And is this ultimately just a, another blip in the chaotic world of Elon Musk, or does this continue to do long-term damage to Twitter, which I know is still now a privately held company again? But for example, and not that my tiny following makes a difference, but I, I had been sort of queasy about being on Twitter already, and then when he made these comments, uh, I decided we would remove our platform, and that's happening um, this week. It won't affect Twitter one way or the other. But um, do you think that he has sparked a trend that will be really hard to get out of, or do you just think he's kind of like Trump, where it's just up and down all day, every day, and it's all Teflon? I mean, yeah, I think that kind of more for the latter. It's, yeah. it's like kind of hard to rationalize in your head, but I mean, what he did, I quit trying to rationalize it with what, what he was saying that he liked. It's also the fact that it wasn't even his own message. It was just, you know, it's something that, let's put it this way, I, I don't see how you have some really, really, really small, a bunch of really smart advertisers that were still committed to, to advertising on Twitter, all within hours, you know, be vocal enough, not just stop advertising, but stop advertising and issue press releases saying that we're stopping to advertise because we don't want to be affiliated with him. I don't know if that makes him, if that, if that was a win or a loss for him. Did he think about that? Or was that the well, intended he, consequence? Well, here's where I think the risk is for him. So uh, 
my view was he he bought Twitter and wanted to run Twitter because it has so much influence over the cultural zeitgeist that um, when it comes to boosting up the share prices of Tesla and everything else, which are you know wildly inflated or anything else that he's doing, it gives him sort of a real advantage in doing that. But as a result, the platform has to be highly relevant. Um, I would say of all of the social media platforms, in many ways, Twitter is, I mean, they're all very destructive in, in, in their own ways, but among the most destructive, because it's hard to see any good that comes from Twitter, right? All you see is conflict and anger um, and hatred or people just desperately trying to show sort of how smart or funny they are or anything else. Um, I mean, if I said to you right now, okay, Jordan, I will give you the option of Twitter just goes out of business and never returns, would you take it? Oh, oh, it's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, like, it's really hard for me to give you an answer to that because I, there, there are, there are aspects where I, I think Twitter does a, does a good job and I'm referring to it as Twitter, not X sure. here, uh, but you know, they do a great job of, of, of allowing, you know, people to really, really communicate in, in a concise way, specific views. Um, there are certain points in time, I think that Twitter serves a great, a great job, a great role for local news. Um, you know, I, there's there's a lot of use cases where you're not going to be able to find that information anywhere else. If you're you know get, if you have if you're stuck in an airport, like you're going to figure out why you're stuck there on Twitter. You're not going to wait for CNN to tell you. And I think that 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 there are some really strong use cases there. I also think that it's 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 rel There are in examples just like this that there are toxic uh, toxic messages getting through that you have a leader of the company saying i don't care um that's a big difference but i think that that all of these platforms are are you know they are real this is a really tough question you're talking about censorship versus versus you know allowing TikTok to deliver the Middle Eastern message in yeah, all its history I mean, in look, 29 I, seconds. I would certainly ban TikTok from the U.S. if I were the, the U.S. government because, yeah, it, I mean, China is deliberately sowing all kinds of discontent here in the U.S. by promoting the Hamas message, and therefore a lot of the protests that we see out there among young people are the direct result of misinformation on TikTok and not actual facts. I mean, do you think that they're actually seeking facts? In 29 seconds, I don't can think you get that to they, a fact? No, but I think that they just sort of take in whatever they're being shown and then internalize it. And if the me if the medium and message is powerful, and, and some of those videos can be very powerful, then that produces the reaction that we're seeing from lots of young people. And then those young people just create other misinformation that they hide behind fake names and not really put their face out yeah. there and then just and then amplify people it. endorsing Obama, bin Laden's letter justifying why 9-11 was a good thing and, and everything and else. And the vast majority of them were in diapers whenever that actually happened. Right. Um, so in September, it looked like there was a glimmer of hope for venture. There were IPOs for... Uh, Instacart, Clavio, Arm, and there, there was at least this moment of like, okay, is the tide turning? And the answer, from what I can tell, has been no. Those stocks haven't performed particularly well. There hasn't then been sort of a, a, another round of IPOs even being announced, let alone happening. So did they just come and go? Um, and is the market kind of where it was over the summer and spring? Or, or do you think things are opening up? And so I think there, you got to look at things in, in kind of uh, two different two different buckets. 
Um, you know, I think that the obviously the, the the valuations for companies going public via IPO are at like 10 year lows. And that's a function of, of, of just the multiples that they're able to command in the market. So I think the demand there is is relatively low. There's just not that much investor enthusiasm for it. Um, a lot of that has to do with interest rates and other macro macro aspects of it. In contrast to that, the M&A market has picked up. Um, so has it picked up because there's real aggressive bidding for companies or, or, or are companies just basically about to go out of business so they're just selling to somebody else? So there, these are so this is more the established company I'm going to acquire. I'm going to do a, a, a your more often than not exit in venture is not a, you know, 25, 50, $100 billion IPO. Right. It's going to be like a sub $300 million M&A transaction right. that can still make a lot of money for a lot of investors. It just matters how, how long it took. Um, so these are not aqua hires where it's just, uh, you know, let's get the engineers a job, which are still really important, but consolidation that's occurring within the industry. I just think that, you know, your bigger corporate your bigger corporate acquirers are getting a little bit more comfortable with where the economy is and their bottom line. They've rebaselined their forecast, and they're now becoming more acquisitive. Right, and they've held on to a lot of cash. And they, absolutely, so that was, what I was gonna, and they're sitting on a ton of cash. And they're, they're So I think that that part is 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 what is interesting, and that is that is helpful. That will drive some liquidity back into the market. But like the the real, the where this starts to become how this flows through the system is without without the IPOs, without the bigger returns, without, you know, you, without without more distributions happening to venture in venture capital, there's just less access to liquidity from the investors that we would go out and raise money from. Right. So you start to create this this a little bit of a cycle. It's really interesting to see the way that venture investors like ourselves are reacting to it. So, you know, whenever if you're underwrite, you know, Back in 2015, 2016, which is kind of where it feels like we are today, you wouldn't really underwrite companies to exit to at, at some of the crazy valuations that they were or exiting at a 50 or 100 billion dollar enterprise right. values. You're looking, you know, a, a total home run should be two two billion dollars, you know, sometimes one billion dollars, and so. To do that, you need to still retain a lot of ownership in those companies. So it, at exit, so what's happening is seed rounds are still competitive. Those those valuations are really they've been quite sticky for so, seed, yeah. first first seed because you got to get that ownership. You got to right. get that twenty percent because twenty percent. It, it doesn't matter how much you own if the company exits for fifty billion dollars. You're definitely you're going to be fat and happy. But it, yeah, if you're if, if you're if you're in double digits when it's all over, you're in good shape. Oh yeah, and like here, you know, if you're if you're talking about you're in double you're in single digits if of ownership and the company exits for a much lower modest yeah. price, that's not going to return your fund. So you'll see you see that battle, and then you see at the Series A, you see a, a very modest step up. So the premium. That you are take that you're getting from being a seed investor for taking that incremental risk. To me, my view yeah. is this not there. Well, it's, right. I'll, I'll say to the listeners, our our strategy has shifted a little bit. Where when the market was at a boom, we actually stepped back and did a lot more seed deals because the Series A valuations were so high that they were a checks that were just too big for us to write in some cases, and b we just thought they were bad deals. Um, now that all of a sudden it feels like the real value is in the A. And I'll, I'll, well, I won't name the company, but there's one where we led the A at a $45 million valuation. The seed was a $30 million valuation. Revenue now is, you know, as much as 30 times of what it was, uh, you know, when, when the seed was raised. And, um, 
that I, we think was a really good deal for us. So, I mean, we're shifting based on market conditions. Do you think everyone's doing that? Or do you think because we're pretty small and non-bureaucratic, we have the ability to be more nimble? I think a lot of people have. Uh, you know, I think that that seed investors that, you know, there is an, you know, our our strategy is very specific and we have the ability, you know, we, we raise money with the, the premise that our entry point is typically post-product seed and, and series A. That's, yeah. that's when we invest. And so... It, you know, we wouldn't go out there and because the deals or the quote unquote relative uh, value that we're getting from a series, you know, a pre-seed company or a series F company is good. That doesn't make us experts in that space. That's not where we play. So we right. th- like we're going to the style drift is a big risk. So I think seed investors are going to be, you know, they need to continue to run the playbook that they're supposed to run. Um, you know, they're there to provide uh, to fill a gap for the asset allocators that gave them that gave them a slug of cash to manage. So I think that, that that's going st- to that's going to run its course. I think it'll be interesting to see whenever the non-traditional investors and the growth investors come back in that are writing the hundred million dollar plus checks because those are either going to come in, um, you know, whenever the tide shifts back again, or what would be even you know much more exciting for for investors like us is if the new ethos was you need to run your company like you never need to raise a Series D. So let's get to let's get to where you're. Right. You know. That that's a home run for us, and we we've got one obviously right now in that in that position. So when okay, so Tiger and SoftBank are sort of the kind of poster child for really bad out of control venture investing over the last couple of years. Um, when they write a ridiculous growth check at a ridiculous valuation into one of our portfolio companies. At the moment, it feels great to us because on paper, our investment just soared. But then assuming those are companies that probably will IPO and not be acquired, we also know that by the time they go public and then our lockup you know, is over, that valuation is down usually 60 to 80 percent. So, I mean, do we how would you say we fare if those those players kind of don't come back into the market? So I, I do think that they're important. Um you know, look, at the end of the day, the performance post-IPO isn't really going to have much to do with, 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 uh, with, with their check coming in or not, their price per share of, you know. Right, the, but, doesn't, but if, the, if the company is wildly overvalued in its last private round, the public market seemed pretty militant about cutting it down to size. Yeah, but that but that doesn't mean. Well, I mean, we're in at way earlier prices, so Tiger doesn't do too oh, well. Oh, understood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my question was for, for for us or for early stage investors specifically. There's this giant bump in valuation, and we're all sort of having champagne because everyone's got rich on paper. And then by the time that the company IPOs and we're allowed to exit, most of that's gone. So, are you, if if Tiger and SoftBank say we're out of the venture market entirely? Does that worry you, or does it just not really make a difference? So I try and remind myself. So the the parts that worry me are areas that actually were somewhat protected here. So um, if they come in and write a really large check, and all of a sudden they say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, that was that was a mistake." I let's let's wind this thing down. Let's return capital back to investors. They can't do that because you know there's no refunds here. That yeah. was reckless due diligence process, if you even want to call it that. You're the one who penciled that in. You, no one told you to value this at whatever multiple you did. Um, and you know what? As part of part of the, the 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 commitment that you had to the company, you didn't even bother taking a board seat. So you know you don't even have the ability to vocalize that. 
Um, and so I, I, as long as it's not changing the trajectory of the business, it's given some portfolio companies that have needed to pivot during this downturn, um, you know, uh, an ample balance sheet that, they, that they're able to draw on to really figure things out. I do think that what people, it's easier to think about na like recent times whenever SoftBank and, and, and Tiger were writing egregious checks into companies at crazy prices, but that strategy worked really well for years. Years of the, as this cycle was building and materializing from 2016 to 2020, you know, they were making a lot of money doing this where they're, they were just playing it fast and loose. And now, now I don't know what their mandate was from a, their, how their LPs feel about the whole thing. Um, but there's also, look, they're not dedicated venture investors. That's a hedge fund. So I think that their, their view is, is they deal with funds that are much larger than ours, but they also, you know, um, the signal that they send to the market, I think, was fading pretty quickly with regards to any sort of like validation or social proof. Yeah, right, right. I mean, obviously, there were times where like we would just sort of shake our heads and couldn't believe that they would make that investment. Right? It might have been good for us, but it still was like, what are you doing? And that, that there were sometimes whenever look, like you could have some problems that the board, boards that really were buttoned up would push back on if there was, you know in an effort to win those rounds, you know, further, further enticements, like it founder secondary, which I think founders, you know, there's quite a few of them out there that, that ended up as part of those really lofty valuations yeah, around that they ended up taking money off the table. Yep. You know, it, it's smart. Um, and it, it's smart for a bunch of people, but it, it sure would really make a lot of, it makes a lot of employees go crazy. You know, why did you have the ability to exit? And I didn't. It wasn't a full tender offer. It wasn't sure. this. And so there was just a lot of and that. And it produces a lot of, I mean, I, I saw that at Uber where, you know, there was what, 10 years from when Uber got started to when we went public with these incredibly high valuations that hit pretty early on in the company's life cycle. Um, and to Travis's credit, he never took a penny off the table until uh, they went public. But um, I know there were a lot of people that were like, why can't I get some liquidity out of this sooner? And so if I'm, it, it, you know, look at there, there are portfolio companies that we have that I'm, I'm as long as it's done in a systematic way that it, you cannot really produce a negative signal from, I'm all for it. If a founder is saying, you know, a founder gets to the Series C, you know, obviously at the Series A or B, I think that's just a little bit uh, premature to be pulling, taking taking yeah. chips off the table. But they have a portfolio of one. That's the one company they've been working on for, let's call it eight years, versus us, where you know we have portfolio, we have funds, the, 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 of, the, the, exactly. The, the, and so you know, here I think that there's a big, there is a real risk of, of um, you know, founders that are. You know, they're they're team players, but they also have a team at home that they can right. that they need to put food on the table yeah. for as well. And by the way, sometimes it's it's a win win where like we are very happy to buy up uh, yeah. employee shares. Look, you sell five percent of your shares into this round, and then do it again at the next round. Don't change it. Don't don't pay. Don't play favorites. Like, ooh, this is this is overpriced or this is underpriced. If you're going to sell a de minimis number of shares, but it's going to be um, a de-risking event, that's just being a smart manager, and and that's something that also prevents founders from potentially pushing for an exit at an artificially low point in the market. Right. So we're now on the 2024 election cycle. Today is President Biden's 81st birthday. So happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> I suspect he wishes it was not his birthday. Uh, so um, from a, a VC standpoint, right, if you had to sort of assess the tax and economic policies of Trump, which are perceived to have been good, even though I would argue Biden's actually done a pretty good job as a steward of the economy, versus the stability of Biden. So let's say that 
because I do think a lot of people um, or at least believe that their lives were better off um, under Trump. So if you said, okay, we like his policies better, but he's who he is, right? And, and no one has any other misconceptions about who he is. Um, we don't like Biden's policies as much, but we've certainly had a lot more stability. From a venture standpoint, which do you prefer? So, I mean, there's there are some specific uh, aspects. I mean, from a from a venture perspective, it's you know there were some there were some increased taxes. You know, Donald Trump, for as much as people think, you know, that the investor community loves everything that he's done. You know, he did increase taxes on on specific tranches of carried interest if it was if that's being held for less than three years. That mm -hmm. was that was highly unfavorable for us. Um, you know, but there are there are situate parts of it where where you know I think it, it did favor uh, venture invest. I think in particular. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of initiatives that were underway to to kind of increase the aperture for for investing into private companies yep. um, and what was made available. I think that it didn't hurt the fact that that kind of the the fiscal policy that spending never never felt like it was it was an endless we were an endless wallet that we were just spending money on yeah, everything. Too so big to fail. To, exactly, and so I think that now we're still in that situation. I think that the line that 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 Trump would say that probably resonated with the market was that we're going to grow our way out of this all the time, right? That's a pretty good, pretty, right. pretty good uh, political answer. I don't, I look, I don't, I don't know, like the, the can Biden. You grow your way out of it. And again, COVID was a unique situation and the, the federal government pumped trillions of new dollars into the economy, which I would argue was necessary and actually kept things relatively stable in a really scary time. But can you ever pump that much money in the economy and not experience rapid inflation? Yeah, I mean, well, I think that we've, it's been, when was the last time that we didn't pump that much money into the economy? I just don't know, if you, you're right, right, and it's like the deficit is basically seen as like a joke that we don't ever have to repay, mm -hmm. but um, at the same time, that, I don't, I don't have a recollection of, other than maybe like a, a really massive war where we've pumped that much money that quickly. So yeah, I think it just takes different different forms. Well, I, I, as far as it goes from a venture investor perspective, whatever leads to lower interest rates probably is going to benefit us the most, right? Because yeah. that's gonna that's gonna really drive up the demand on the risk curve for, right. for like from fundraising, from our perspective, from our portfolio companies' perspectives, from a liquidity perspective. That's just going to be, as an as a if you hold financial assets, you're probably going to be better off with lower interest rates, um, or at least in a decreasing rate environment. Um, I'm not sure that there, there there are just some aspects that I'm I just don't think make that much sense to me uh, on on what Biden has really kind of stood for on economic policy and I think that you know the his his competition you know it, you know he's, he's trying to be a champion of entrepreneurs and small businesses yet you know he's low, by by lowering barriers to entry and increasing competition what's ultimately better for consumers than driving down prices it also it's a pretty hawkish view on M&A activity which makes it harder for us to exit companies and therefore that that that's a negative for that now for an entrepreneur that's not running a venture backed business i understand where that's coming from but for us specifically right. i think that you know a less less of a, a hawkish stance on M&A would be would be highly favorable. I don't know, you know, you, I, I was going to ask you this question. Does this whole non so you got trickle down economics which is let's just call that what, yep. what let's call that the Trump era mm -hmm. uh, stance and then this like let's trickle outwards if from outwards in or, or yeah. whatever. Although, <laughs> all the to your point Trump spending was um, really no less wild than than Biden's and again but that some was of pandemic it, driven. Right. And well some of it was pre-pandemic but some Fair of enough. it was 
was pandemic. Right, it's, it's interesting, right? So if you look at it, I kind of the same conclusion as you, which is the single best economic indicator for venture capital or interest rates, right? And therefore, higher inflation, which is something that the public and the voters really hate. I mean, one of the reasons I would say Biden's in trouble right now is because people have experienced inflation. The rate of growth is certainly slowing, so that's softening, which is good. But it's not like prices are going down either. And people really feel that, and they internalize that, and they vote on that. Um, so the minute that inflation starts to go up, the Fed reacts by raising interest rates to try to cool spending, um, and then that's really bad for for venture and IPO and multiples and everything else. I, I guess what you have to weigh it against is, let's say that we hadn't pumped, and it was like four or five trillion dollars into the economy during COVID, where would we be right now, right? So. Arguably, inflation would be lower, interest rates would be lower, that would be better for, for tech and for venture. But would there have been such massive structural damage that we would be climbing out of a hole that's far, far deeper and ultimately in a worse problem? I, I don't know, but I think that's, at least if you're going to be intellectually honest about it, how you have to think about it. Uh, I, I agree with you. And, and I don't want to ignore some of the stuff that, 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 that Joe Biden did, um, you know, some of, the, some of the acts of legislation that, that, that yeah, he did. Yeah, CHIPS Act, the Reduction Act, Infrastructure Bill, those were great. Yeah, really, really positive for the, for the economy overall. I just think that, you know, it's, it's really hard to... to, to to isolate, you know, one or two of his policies and say that that is better or worse. But also, these are all we'll we'll, we'll know four years from now what uh, the impact that this all had, and then we'll say that on his eighty fifth birthday, we'll, we'll say we'll say the great job. So you know, he may or may not be finishing the, the, his second term. Exactly. At well, at that point, you get credit for the first terms, you know, because you're you're always going to be on the line. It takes years for this to, to shake out, and right. I still think that you know he's going to have to come up with some pretty some something pretty clever to figure the, the last shoe to drop on the on the real estate. And debt, the, that debt crisis that, that is looming in the newspapers every day. Yeah, you know, there's going to take some some fancy footwork to get out of that. So, so I want to end on a local thing, but it's interesting. So, the markets, when it comes to the markets, perception and reality matter kind of equally, right? And then when it comes to local government and things like crime and quality of life, I would argue again perception and reality kind of matter equally, right? So you, you've been a New Yorker for a long time now. Um, we're suffering from a massive migrant crisis. We're suffering from a massive quality of life crisis. There are huge pending budget cuts that are going to reduce police, sanitation, all of the things that kind of make education, city, yeah, fun function well. Um, and a mayor under investigation by the FBI. So if New York is in bad shape right now, how does that affect the New York City tech ecosystem? Is it totally independent or is it somewhat dependent on how the city's doing overall? So ironically, before we talked about doing this podcast this morning, yeah. yesterday I'm on a play date with my four and a half year old and two other dads, one of which is a founder in New York, one mm -hmm. of which is another venture capital investor. Okay. They just happen to be in the same preschool. And so we this came up. And because one of them just had, had uh, you know, has a daughter my that has my daughter's age, and then also just had twins last week. That's why wow. twins. Wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then the other is, and you know, we're in the middle of the whole kindergarten gauntlet right now. Yeah. Do you go to public school, private school? There's too many. Everybody's heard these nightmare stories. And I think that this is where you start to see a major a major bifurcation, right? So um, the issue of safety, the issue of education. Those two cuts alone um, are what people that have transitioned from being single in the city 
to trying to raise a family in the city, they say enough is enough. I'm paying a fortune to live here. This place was expensive as hell whenever I was single. This is insane now. Yeah. Um, and they're forced to go into these other insanely overpriced suburbs. Um, and so I think that that that's it's all it's always been expensive, but that's where you're starting to see this 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 quality of life problem. So was the founder saying? If I can't attract the employees that I need because New York, the value propositions, because what you're, what you're really saying in a way is it's wildly expensive and not worth it, right? New York is always really expensive, but when the city is running really well, it feels like such a great place to be that people are willing to make that trade-off. To me, it's always worth it. And I think that younger people coming to the city right out of college, um, or not even just right out of college, just younger people coming to the city to start their careers, it's worth it. And I think that that's showing up. Now, I think that there's also another- So the founder was not at all worried about the founder, her or his ability to attract talent. No, they were worried about how am I going to put two, how am I going to be on a founder? salary without an exit and put two kids through private school that's that that's what they were worried about and they're not wrong and they're worried about the safety around like the public school what's happening or they're they're cutting the they're cutting the budget for where another because there are you know contrary to common what people think about new york they think that of course you can't send your kid to a, a public school in new york city that is completely not true right there are a lot of great public schools in the city and, yep. and i think that you know a lot of that comes down to you know where do you live and that that plays a role and just sometimes if you're what depends on what you're optimizing for you're just not zoned for one and so I think that you know that part. That part is really uh, that. That's the challenge, and that's the because you're you know you optically as a founder, even if it's a, you're, you're just there's a cap on how much cash you you're going to take in, and you know unfortunately private schools aren't going to take aren't going to take options. Uh, so so if, in this situation, then if the founders who are a little older usually than the new employees are saying New York's not working for me. But they don't have a problem bringing in new employees because those people are saying the trade-off does work for them. Does that result in fewer startups being created here and staying here, or just things just kind of continue unabated? So it's a really good question. I think that we have to bring in other cities as well. So you know, I think that the the w whether those factors, you know, or other factors cause New York to become just astronomically un unaffordable or personal safety really uh, reaches a critical tipping point. That's one. That's one piece of the dynamic. And then I think the the other aspect is you know families are continuing to move out of the city for the point that we just talked about. But you know who else is moving out of the city and what's that being offset by? And I think that this, like, I think New York is 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 obviously. I've lived here for a very long time. I'm very vocal about how much I love it. Um, but I, I do think that you know what this city does look amazing to. There's not really that many options for venture uh, for for technology startups. You're you're you want to go to where the talent is. Whenever you're talking tier one technology hubs in the United States of America, you're talking about New York City and San Francisco. And has San Francisco and your what you've seen suffered? sort of new new startup creation because of their quality of life issues? I think San Francisco is in dire straits right now. I have seen the number of people that if you look at, if you're looking at where are people coming from and where are they going, uh, and you're tracking people that are newer in their careers, nobody wants to be in San Francisco. They're all moving to New York. So they want, they, they still so want why, to So let's city. assume that New York enters a similar doom loop, right, where all of a sudden, you know, crime spikes, you know, quality of life gets worse and worse because of the migrant crisis. There's no money to deal with any of it. That leads to the wealthier, you know, something like 50,000 taxpayers in the city pay 50% of the local taxes. More and more of them leave, and you just get caught in this cycle. 
why wouldn't New York City's tech ecosystem suffer the same fate as San Francisco's? So, well, I think that there's a so because because New York City will not fall uh, is is New York City has other indus- major industries that mm-hmm. drive that drive the city forward, whereas yeah. San Francisco is a completely from a regulatory perspective a completely hostile environment to the only thing that drives revenue to that to that to that area, which is the technology ecosystem. Right. Here, we're the capital of the media, we're the capital of the, of the financial ecosystem, um, and and technology as well. So, I think that. You know, we're not uh, a one-trick pony, yeah. and I think that that's that's what will what will keep this. Uh, what will we will be able to resolve this? And you know, the this is every time that we there's a this question comes up a lot. I feel like the beginning of the of the pandemic, and the adage is always remain the same. Like that looked like we were in the peak doom and gloom era, and you know, the city came back faster than any other city out there, major city out there. It's really hard to bet against this city. It really is, and I think that the demand to live here is 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 so pervasive that people will do whatever they have to do. They'll live in the smallest apartment they need to. But I think that also there are longer term projects to increase housing affordability um, that are underway that will make this a, a better place for people to stay longer. Sounds good, Jordan. Thanks for joining. Thanks. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.